And so uh, we are diving in uh, to a story uh, today that's found in the book of 1 Samuel. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. Uh, we're going to put it up on the screen for you. But real quickly, I just want to kind of remind you what this series is that we've been partaking of the last four weeks. Today's our fifth week, and it's a series called Jesus, the True and Better. And if we look at that, we oftentimes wonder, well, what does it mean Jesus the true and better. But Jesus is indeed the true and better king. He is what we see in the Old Testament prophesied. And so you see stories and you see narratives all throughout your Bible. And oftentimes we even wonder, what is the Old Testament about? Is it relative at all to us today? And I think many of us grew up in places, or if you ever were in church, you kind of wondered, what does the Old Testament mean? And so like, let me ask you a question, okay? If you're here this morning, uh, if you're in Edgewood, you can join us as well. But if you're here and you're like, I have no idea that the Old Testament was that important, would you just raise your hand? Like, you'd be honest and say, I really didn't know the Old Testament. Come on, quit lying. Here you go. Okay. And you're like, well, it must've been important because it's in our Bible. But I think for many of us in this room, many of us in Edgewood would say, I really never put it all together that I've seen the Old Testament. I know that it's 39 books in, in, in this old story, but I always read the New Testament because I understand it better. I don't get all the history and all of that anyway. But what we see is this, the Old Testament is a book of narratives or books of narratives, history, stories that tell of a nation. And from that nation comes a man named Jesus, the Messiah, the savior of the world. The one that's born in the city of David, the town of Bethlehem, the one that's wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, that's him. And the Old Testament shares a story about this coming king. And so in Adam, we see that uh, the first Adam, he failed in the Garden of, of Eden. And though it was perfect, he failed. And Jesus, though he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He took the cup of wrath that was due to us as sinners and he drank it willingly so that we may have life in Christ. We see also in Joseph the story uh, that he was hated by his brothers, but he was dearly loved by his father, chosen by God to what? bring hope to a nation, a nation that was in famine, a nation that needed hope. And though his brothers had a plan to kill him, the Lord had a plan to save his life and use him to save his people. That sounds very familiar to what? Jesus. And so here it is, the fifth week after studying, uh, we've studied Adam, we've studied uh, Joseph, uh, we've um, studied others. Today we're going to be in the story of 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to look at this boy named David who would eventually come the king of Israel. So here we are, let's dive in, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Y'all ready? Okay, here we go. We got 54 verses to cover. We got to roll. Here we go. In verse 1, we see that the Philistines are actually uh, camped up at Soko in Judah. They're up on a hill, and then uh, we see that the Israelites are on the hill of Elah, or on the uh, 
they're about to have uh, this battle in the Valley of Elah, and that's where they're going to go, and they're going to fight it out. But every day that they gather for war, there is a man that comes out, and he speaks to the Philistines. And in verse 4, it says that this man is a champion named Goliath who is from Gath, and he comes out of the Philistine camp, and his height was six cubits in a span. And I know that every one of you in here is like, I have no idea what a cubit is. But a cubit is basically the, the span from your arm to your hand, and it would be about 17 and a half inches in the Jewish day. And so what we know is this, Goliath was anywhere from nine and a half to 10 foot tall. Nine and a half to 10 foot tall. So you think Dirk Nowitzki is tall? He has nothing on this dude named Goliath, right? And then you see this. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. And on his legs, he wore brown, uh, bronze greaves, a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. And his shield bearer would often go ahead of him. Just the spear point that he carried was 15 pounds. And so I don't know if you realize it, but this dude is huge huge. And here's what's happening. Every single day, we see from the narrative that he keeps coming out, and he comes down from Sokol into the Valley of Elah, and he just shouts, and he just yells at all the Israelite people, and he goes, hey, interpretation from Pastor Brandon, you want some of me? <laughs> and here's the deal. The Israelites don't. They literally are living in fear. They live in fear knowing that not only does King Saul not have an answer, but they don't have an answer to this giant. That this giant is literally lording himself over them. Every day he tempts them, he yells at them, he scorns them, and they have no solution. They have nothing to bring them hope. Verse 8 says, Goliath stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I... Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. And if not, then you'll become our subjects. You'll serve us. And so here's what he's doing. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. This nation that we know in Genesis chapter 12 was called out by God through Abraham. He gets this man out of Ur of the Chaldeans, brings him out, says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your nation great. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you people. I'm going to give you blessings. And he, one of the things that you see in the covenant stipulation in Genesis 12 is this. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And here it is. They're sitting in the midst of this battle with the Philistines. They have no hope, no source of strength. They're being mocked by this incredible giant. And he says, if I win, you'll serve me. But if you win, then we'll all serve you. And King Saul being the king of the greatest nation in all of the world, has no answer. 
He doesn't return back to the orthodox principles of the Jewish tradition. He doesn't remember what Moses said and what all uh, of the, the, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy suggests. And that is that we are God's people and no one can overcome us if we are obedient to God. He never thinks of that. And so here it is. They're in this great dilemma with the Philistine people. They're being overrun by this incredible giant, this one-man show and they have no solution. And here it is, you come to the point and you go, well, where is Jesus in this narrative? Where is Jesus in this story? Well, Jesus is not on the scene yet, but here's what I know. The people that have rejected God are being tormented by an evil one. His name is called Lucifer. His name is the evil one. He is Diablos. He is the deceiver. Matter of fact, in Colossians 1.13, you see he's called the prince of darkness. In 2 Timothy, he's called the snare or he is the lie. He's the devil. 1 John would suggest that he's the evil one. Ephesians says that he's the prince of the power of the air. John 8 says he's the father of lies. John 12 says what? He's the ruler of this world. Who is that? That is Satan himself. And we know for a season that he has been handed over authority and he is tormenting those who have put their hope in this world. And we oftentimes live as if we are in fear. We are living in a trepidatious time where we wonder if all of this is ever going to come to an end, if it's all going to be made right, and we're looking for our victor, our coming king. Well, Israel is in this same scenario when Jesus comes on the scene. Some thousand years later after this story, here it is, they're under Roman rule, and they're wondering if their king's ever going to arrive. And when he does, they're still in despair. And they reject him because of who he is and what he looks like. Matter of fact, we'll see it in this narrative. But we know this, that the people in this story are fearful of the Philistines, just as we are fearful of Satan and all of his followers. Matter of fact, we know in Ephesians chapter 6 that our what? Power is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities, the authorities, what? Of this dark world that are what? In the the heavenly realms, meaning oftentimes the greatest fear in our lives comes from Satan himself, the father of lies, the deceiver himself, the Diablos, the one that accuses us and oftentimes leaves us living in fear. Matter of fact, every single fear-based thing that you have going on in your life ultimately is a lie from Satan. Every single thing. And what he wants us to do is believe that our, co our coming king, our conquering king, has not done enough. That the war will not be won. And that's what they are doing right here in the camp of Israel. They believe that, that this Philistine is coming to kill, steal, and destroy them. That he is going to take them off and they're going to have to serve him forever. Sound familiar? And then verse 10. And the Philistine says, this day I defy the armies of Israel. He said, I'm speaking against you on this day. Give me a man and let's fight. Do you see what he says? Give me a man. Give me a man. Like all of us men in here, like we ought to be just like our adrenaline ought to start just rising in us, right? Because in Israel, there's not a man one. They're all gathered around their camp. They sit at the campfire at night and they cry on each other's shoulders. They have armor on. They have been trained in military uh, 
commands, and here it is, every single day the Philistine comes out, day after day after day after day, and all he says is this, give me a man. Give me a man. Give me a man that will fight me. Give me a man that's willing to die for a cause. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about having men and women who will follow their coming king, the king that whatever, he lived, he died, and he's returning, and that's all he says, give me a man, give me a man. And that's what the accuser himself is saying, give me a man. And on hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Wow. And so here it is, the people of God are terrified at this accuser, this deceiver, this liar, this thief, this scandalous man who is a Philistine. And he says, here it is that you're the people of God and you can't send me a man to fight in this war. And then verse 12 says, now David, his name means beloved or loved. David, the one that's loved was the son of Ephrathite named Jesse. And his name means to be or to exist, who was from Bethlehem and Judah. And Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was very old. And Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the world. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. And David was the youngest. And we know that David was the youngest of all of them. Matter of fact, he was the one that was overlooked when Jesse was approached about having a new king in Israel. He's the one that's overlooked. Why? Because he's a scrawny looking little runt compared to his brothers. He's not the one that anybody would pick. Well, here it is. David, the, the young son of Jesse, the one that's the, the son of the existing one, comes to love. And so here it is, Jesse's name means to exist or live as in old age, and he comes to love. So here it is, the one that comes from the existing one comes to love, comes to serve. His name is David, or in this case, his name could be Jesus. And Jesse's three oldest sons follow Saul the world war. We see that. The three oldest um, follow Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And he's going back and forth, tending the sheep. And for verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistines continue to do what? Come forward every morning and he takes his stand. And so day after day after day, they have the same problem. They, they live in fear they live in anxiety, they're restless, and they know that they can't overcome the evil one. Why? Because they have no conquering king. Saul is not the guy. David's brothers aren't the guys. All these military men who sit around the campfire every night and weep on each other's shoulders are not the guy. And so surely there's a guy in Israel that will take a stand. Well, verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah, and all this roasted grain and the 10 loads of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses and give it to the commanders of their unit. See how your brothers are doing and bring back some assurance from them. He goes, I want you to go and check. And basically, I want you to leave home. I want you to leave the flock that you're tending because he's a shepherd. And he said, I want you to leave the sheep and I want you to go down to our people. And I want you to bring back a report of how they're doing. And what is it that he's taking to them? He's taking them food, particularly bread. What is it that Jesus comes to do? Jesus leaves, his father says, the existing one, to his beloved son. Their God, what? 
sent his one and only son, yes, to love us. That's the goal. John 3, 16, what does he do? He comes, and in John 6, verse 51, to give what? Bread of life. And he says, whoever eats this bread will never hunger again. And so Jesse sends David, his son, the loved one, beloved by his father, to go and give bread to the people. And he says, and then I want you to come back and give a report to me. And I want you to tell me how they're doing. And so it is, he sent to give food. And verse 19, they are there with Saul and all the, the, the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. And early in the morning, David left the flock in care of the shepherd, in the care of the shepherd, loaded up and set out and Jesse, as Jesse had directed. And he he reached the camp as the army was going to its battle position, shouting the war cry. And so here it is. He arrives and get this. What did he do? He left the sheep behind. When Jesus leaves the right hand of the father to come to us, he leaves sheep behind. Did you know that? There are people now that are in the care of the father. And Jesus says, father, you have all of these loved ones that have gone before us, but I'm going to go down and seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19, 10. And so it is, David sent out to check on the welfare of his people, and in particular, his brothers. And as he gets there, they're drawing their war lines, and they're shouting cries. Verse 21, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. 22, David left all of his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran into the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. And so he goes, he checks on his brothers, and as he's talking to them, Goliath, this Philistine giant, this champion from Gath, comes out. He stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance and David hears it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled with great fear. And so here it is. He's gone to take food to his brothers. He's supplying them with all their needs. And then here it is, this champion of Gath, Goliath, this 10-foot giant comes out and he says his usual words. David hears it. And then all at once, this little boy gets trampled by all of these soldiers. What? Valiant, strong, because they're running in fear for their lives. And David begins to ask questions. He begins to wonder, what is it that's happening here? Why are our people running in fear? I'm going to report back to my father that our people are scared of the evil one? That they're living in fear, that they're scared for their lives? And verse 25 says, now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel. And that's the conversation. He keeps coming out day by day, but we have no answer. Maybe we'll have an answer tomorrow. The next day he comes out every day. Maybe we'll have an answer tomorrow. He comes out again every day. Maybe we'll have an answer tomorrow. And day after day after day, they have no answer for the evil one, right? And then here it is. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. And he goes... He'll even give his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. The king is willing to give benefits to the one who slays the giant. He's willing to give him something in return, like a life of luxury, a life, a new kingdom, so to say. His own kingdom will come if this one person would slay this evil giant. And David asked the man standing there, now, wait a second, what did you say? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should be defying the armies of the living God? And this runt named David, of no comely appearance, really, goes, wait a second, you're telling me that no one 
will take a stand. Now, now what are the benefits? You're telling me that the whole family doesn't pay taxes, that the brothers are exempt from Israel, that we'll live a life of luxury with our king, with, our, with, the, with the, the Lord over all, and no one will step up because of this giant, and he's continually disgracing the army of the Lord, the living God? And that's the greatest question. Like God and his people are being disgraced by this villain and no one will step up with a solution. And David says, you've got to be kidding me. No one here is brave enough to take on this giant. And then look what happens. And when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked him, why is it that you've come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Did you see what he does? He goes, why did you leave the father's house to come to us? Why are you leaving to come here? What do you have to offer us? Why did you leave the sheep? Isn't that the wonder? Like, God, why would you send your one and only son, beloved by the father, the existing one, very old in age, to go down to his people, to seek and save that which was lost? And all the time while he's doing that, what is the common question? The common question is, is what are you doing here? Who are you? Isn't that what they kept asking Jesus? Do you remember Nathaniel as he's being called by the Lord? What does he say? What good comes from Nazareth? Who is this guy? In Matthew 13, 55, there's a group of people and they're watching Jesus teach in the synagogue. And do you know what they say? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, what does he have to offer? And not only do his, do his own people say it, everyone around is saying it. Not only does the brother of David say it, what do you have to offer? Who are you here for? What are you doing here? But all the people in the camp are going to say it. Why? Because they look at David and they see that there's nothing real impressive. Matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, do you know what Isaiah the prophet said 700 years before Jesus would come? He says, there is going to be one who sprouts up, but he will be of no comely appearance. Meaning when you look at Jesus, you're not going to be blown away and you're not going to think, oh, wow, this guy from Nazareth, the son of the carpenter is going to be able to take over this evil villain called Satan. Why? Because that's not the king that they believed would overtake the giant called Satan. Just as when they looked at David, they see David, the sons of Jesse, eight of them standing there, seven of which look impressive and strong. One could be a quarterback. One could be a starting linebacker at the University of Texas. And here it is. You got David and he might could play at A&M. You know what I mean? <laughs> and here's the deal. Nobody's recruiting him. Nobody really cares to have him. And they go, he's just not that impressive. But yet he's the one that's going to win the Heisman, Right. Ah, that's, that's a good word right there. That's a good word. And here it is. You see. In verse 29, now what have I done? He's trying to give a response. Like you're accusing me of coming down here for ill reasons. Now what have I done? 
can't I even speak? And then in verse 30, he says, then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And what David was overhearing as reported to Saul, Saul sends for him. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistines. Your servant will go and fight him. So Saul replied, wait a second, you're not going to go out to the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now here it is, the king of Israel, Saul himself, says, wait a second. No, 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 no. You do not have the badges. You don't have the prestige. You don't have the honor to be going out and fighting this king. You don't have the title. You don't have the accolades. You've never fought in war. You've never done any of this stuff. You have no right to go out into the Valley of Elah and slay a giant. Matter of fact, this dude is not your average dude. Like he carries the whole team, David. David, he, he carries the whole team, brother. Like you, you're, not, you're not hearing me. And David, look what he says. As no comely appearance, Nothing really to offer, nothing really to look at. This, this God David says, wait a second. I, I, I am the one that has been keeping my father's sheep. I, I've been keeping my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear comes and carries off a sheep from the flock, I go after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, and he takes a shot at him. You see what I'm saying? He goes, this uncircumcised Philistine, this worthless piece of junk. And you go, wait, 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 wait a second. I didn't think God created junk. And he goes, wait a second. He's not God's person. He is tormenting the people of God, and we're going to deal with him. And who is he in this story? He's the evil one. He's the Diablos. He's the accuser. He is the picture of the enemy, Satan himself. And David looks at him, and he says, I'm going to take him down. This uncircumcised Philistine is going down today. He's going down today. And he goes, and I'm going to be the one taking him down. He says, I've taken down bears. I've taken down lions. If they run from me, I chase them down. If they turn back, I grab their hair and I whip them steel. He said, there is nothing that I'm afraid of. You may look at me and not be impressed, but I came to win this battle, this war, this victory. And here it is. Saul goes, okay, go and let the, the Lord be with you. And then Saul dresses David in his own tunic and he tries to put it on. And you know the story. Like, you know, he, he, can't, he can't wear it, right? It's all too large for him. They give him a bronze helmet on his head. They, they fasten a sword over the tunic. They try him walking around. And here it is. He, he just can't do it. He's not used to all of it. And he goes, I cannot go in all of this. I cannot use all of this stuff. And in verse 41, you see that meanwhile, the Philistine with the shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. Why? Because all David did was approach him with a bag in his hand, a pouch, and what? A few stones. And he picks up five stones from the riverbed. Verse 40 is what we see. And what we see is this, five stones, why five? And there's, there's this kind of tradition that maybe the giant, this guy named Goliath, had four other brothers. That's the kind of the, 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 the thinking. And so here it is. He grabs these five stones. He heads out with a pouch and sling, and that's all he's got. He goes, I can't use all this armor. You're trying to make me something that I'm not. 
What is it that Jesus comes to do? Jesus comes to be a king riding on a foal, a donkey, riding through. People hail him, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. But all the while they look at him and they know that he's not that impressive. And Jesus didn't come to be something that he wasn't. He didn't come to, to throw over the, the Roman government. He didn't come to lord over them. He didn't come to put Israel back to be the greatest economy. He didn't come to make Israel the greatest army or military command station in the world. What did he do? He came to live humbly among people and to destroy an evil villain so that people could be free. That's what he did. And so here it is in this story. Meanwhile, this Philistine keeps coming closer and closer and closer. He looks at David and he oversees uh, all this little boy had. He's glowing with health. He's ruddy and he despised him. He's handsome is the idea. And he says to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? In a sense, he looks at him and, and, and can you imagine this 10 foot giant looking at this boy who probably weighs about the same amount as his armor does? And he goes, who in the world are you? I mean, can you imagine, like, just think about it in your mind. Like, this is my kid's favorite story. And we tell it to him probably once every few months. And matter of fact, even this morning, Brady was like, you're preaching on David and Goliath? Yes. Why? Because we know that David was nothing to look at. But isn't that what, isn't that what was said to Jesse when when Israel was choosing the king, we're not interested in the outward appearance. What are we interested in? The heart. What does God care most about? The heart. And here it is, the heart of the champions going out. And David says, come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh and the birds to the wild animals. That's after Goliath had said the same thing. And so if you look at it in verse 45, he goes, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you defiled. And this day I'm going to deliver you into my hands and, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. And this very day I will give your carcasses over the Philistine army to the birds and to the wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And so who is it that's going to win this war? David says, it's not me. It's God. The Father and Lord of all is going to win this war, and he's going to do it by sending me, this boy that you mock, this boy that you reject, this boy that you jeer at, the one that you look and you say that he is what? Of no comely appearance, he's small, he's, he's not real quick, he's not real nimble, he's, he's not the guy that you're going to pick on your team, but he's the one through God that's going to accomplish it all. And that's exactly what we see that Jesus is going to do. And so you and I need to know and never lose hope that Jesus came to save the world from the evil one. He came and no, no one looked at him as if he was the king to come. No one gave him much credit as the Messiah to be. Jesus said, I come humbly in the name of the Lord. There is nothing that I do that the father has not done what known about and there's nothing that I do that the father did not send me for and ultimately here it is Jesus is in the midst of this battle with the evil one he is jeered he is mocked and for 40 days in the wilderness isn't he tempted by Satan in Matthew 4 yes 
How many days did Goliath come out day after day after day and mock the Israelite people? 40 days is what the scripture said. And so here it is. He's mocked in the wilderness. Jesus is, but he says, hey, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to submit to your temptation. I've come for a what? A real purpose. And so here it is. 46, after he says, I'm going to deliver you in the hands, it gets us to 47. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. And then here it is. The Philistine moves closer. Here it is. He's coming in the valley of Elah Elah from Soko. He's coming closer, coming closer, coming closer. And I love this part of the narrative. I love this story, okay? What does David do? David doesn't take a step back. He doesn't wait on him. It says, and reaching into his bag, verse 49, and taking out a stone, he runs, right, quickly towards him, 48. He runs as fast as he can towards him. He grabs a stone from his bag, and he slings it, and he hurls it, and he strikes Dave, uh, the, uh, Goliath, what, right in the head. And look what the, the, the stone does. And the stone, you can't miss this. This is good. This is what takes the, the actual movie, you know, up a notch. This is PG-13, you got me? Why? Because the stone sinks, in, what, sinks right into his forehead. And then what? David watches him fall face down onto the ground. And so David triumphs over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and with a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and he killed him. And he said, who is it? Do you remember what he said? Who is it that comes at me with sticks? Hold on, let me say that again. Just in case you didn't catch that. Who is this? A dog that comes at me with sticks. And with a pair of sticks, Jesus is going to lord over his enemy. The adversary, the accuser, the diabolos who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The one who, what, is like a lion looking for someone to destroy. What does David do with lions? He chases them down. And he goes, and they turn back on me, I grab them and I slay them. What is it that Jesus came to do? Jesus came to address the problem head on, knowing that you may look at me and wonder, what is this man, this carpenter's son? Who is this guy from Nazareth? What is he doing? And yet Jesus says, I've come and I am running quickly. I am chastening the people who've despised me. And moreover, I am going to what? I am going to slay the giant. And just as you and I were cursed in the garden, Galatians 3 says Jesus would be cursed on a tree so that you and I, his people, may be set free. And he dies a sinner's death so that you and I could, what, see triumph and victory. And then look what David does. It's incredible. David runs and stands over him. This boy, probably weighing 115 or 150 pounds, stands over and he draws the sword and after he kills him he what slays the giant and what does he do he draws the sword from who yes the giants and here it is like can you imagine David (laughs) and then I'm sure he had to do this (laughs) right and then he grabs his head 
and he takes it back to his people. Why? Because he is the victor. And the people are going to enjoy the spoils of war. And here it is, all of these people who stood afraid, stood with fear, stood with no hope and no solution, are now being brought closer because of this little young man who was obedient to God with simply what? A sling and a few stones. See, the story of David and Goliath is not a story that you and I have heard all of our lives about overcoming our own fear overcoming our own obstacles in life. It's not simply a motivation speech they give at your Christmas party to help you fight the new year. It's not, hey, woe is you, man, I know it's pretty tough and life keeps coming at you like a bunch of giants. And hey, you just need to pick it up, get a little angst about yourself and go into the valley and hey, go to war. No, 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 it's not that. It is not something that's been preached to us over and over and over and over again in our churches about this, hey man, just gird your loins and hey, get a little stronger and by faith go into battle and maybe you'll overcome. No, no, this story is an Old Testament narrative about a shepherd boy who would leave his sheep with his father, who would go to his brothers and provide for them in the midst of war food to eat. And upon giving them food to eat, he's going to address, address a bigger problem, a subject, an adversary that keeps coming out and tempting the people and speaking to the people hastily. And with mocking and with jeering, he keeps saying, who are you that you would come at me? I'm a Philistine. And when I slay you, you're going to serve me. Wasn't that what Satan said to what? Jesus in Matthew 4, if you bow down to me, then what? I'll give all of this that people may serve you. Just bow down to me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I don't bow to you. And so here it is. You've got this shepherd who comes to seek and save that which is lost. People in fear, wandering aimlessly for their lives. Look how the, the narrative ends. After the cross, the battle's won. yes. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Like they run people all the way to Gath and then pass that to Ekron. And here it is. Get this. These lowly men dressed in armor who've been crying over themselves for days, upon days, upon days, are now shouting with victory, and they're chasing people. What is this? It's us. It's us. Why? Because there's something in the narrative earlier that we might have missed and looked over. What did the king promise to the one who had overcome the giant? He said, I'm going to give you a bride. I'm going to give you what? Freedom, possessions, and more. What did Jesus come to do? He came to what? Give life to his bride that we may sing and shout to victory. The old sim, the old hymn, right? And then what do we do? We run and it says that when the enemy comes, that if we will what? Stand firm, he'll flee from us. Isn't that what the scriptures call us to do? He'll flee from us. And what do we do? We are supposed to chase. And in Ephesians chapter six, the interesting thing is this, is that God has given us lots of armor. What does he say? You got a helmet of salvation. You got a sword of spirit. You got the breastplate of righteousness in place. Your feet are shod and ready. They're equipped. 
all of those for the defensive, right? Like we can all defense, but then there's one offensive weapon that we have. And that one offensive weapon is the one thing that keeps the adversary fleeing. It's the one thing that does not allow him to beat you in the Valley of Elah. It's the very thing that keeps you steadfast and strong. It's the very thing that equips you in Ephesians 6 for the principalities and the powers of this dark world. And that is the sword of the spirit. The very thing that would slay off the head of the giant is the very thing that keeps the enemy from having any leg room with you. And that is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Amen. Amen. And so let me ask you folks, how in the world are we going to chase the adversary away? How are we going to take refuge in this king, this king of no comely appearance, the one that's a shepherd that will eventually become Messiah for his people, David, Jesus for us, the loved one sent by the existing father. How do we find refuge in him? We find it through the word. We find it through his spirit that what is so uh, living in us that it causes us to sing and shout and run with victory. Why? Because we know that not only has a battle been won, but the war is over. The war is over. And so like, listen to me, we're not merely coming into the Christmas season celebrating a boy from the town of Nazareth who laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Well, that is incredible. That little boy laying in swaddling clothes becomes a young man who's loved by his father who comes to seek and save that which is lost. And though he's rejected by many of his own, though his people would say, you are not the one to win this war, he does it. And for us, we're grateful. Why? Because he takes us and he calls us into his family as sons and daughters of the Most High King. We are adopted. We are a royal people, a priesthood, a holy nation, dearly beloved is what Peter says. Why? Because of this lowly guy from Nazareth, this lowly guy, a carpenter's son that would what? Win the war on the cross. That while we're cursed by the tree in the garden, we're freed by the tree on Golgotha outside of the camp as what Moses said, a sacrifice made for us so that we could come close to the father. Isn't that awesome? It's incredible. Here's the crazy thing. If you read the rest of this narrative, you'll see that Saul goes to his commander named Abner and he goes, who is this boy? And Abner goes, I don't know. I don't know who he is. And isn't that part of the problem today? Even after David overcomes this incredible giant, the people still go, I don't know who he is. I've never seen him before. And so this Christmas season, what should be one of the greatest hopes of the believer, those that sing and shout to victory? What should be our hope? Our hope should be that other people know who Jesus is. That we don't merely allow him to win the great war and this incredible victory and then go on throughout our lives but that we should look at him and see him win this incredible war on the cross to give us freedom, right? That we're no longer slaves to fear, that we're no longer slaves to our own sin, that we've been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ is what the scripture says. Shouldn't we tell other people about him? Yes, it was this lowly guy from Nazareth. It was this carpenter's son. It was, as Isaiah said, of no comely appearance, but yes, he sprouted out and like a true king, he overcame the giant. He killed the enemy, the Diablos, the accuser, 
himself. And we know in Revelation chapter what, 19, that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And final, final with totality, this war is finished. How did that happen? Through the cross. Amen? Amen. And so we, we go out today and celebrate David as an incredible king, but not just David, but the true and David, true and better David, Jesus Christ, the one who comes for his people. Amen? Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it comes alive to us. And Father, you tell us uh, that your word is like a double-edged sword, and it divides joint and marrow. And Lord, you want to get down to our hearts. You want to see what it is that we have going on in our lives, and you want to use the word to discipline us, to chasten us, to train us for times like this, times where our world seems to be in disarray, times where we look upon the news and everything that's going on in our culture, and we oftentimes wonder, is... Is this Jesus really who he said he was? Did he really overcome? Did he really overcome this giant Satan? Did he really win the war? Because God, if he did win the war, then why do we have so much mess going on? Why is there so much turmoil? Why does it seem that we're tempted and led astray? And Father, that's a question that oftentimes we're posed with as believers. But the one thing we know is, is that you have not merely allowed us to be posed these questions without a solution. But the solution that we need is found in the very word of God. The word that which we read, the Holy Spirit helps interpret it so we can understand it and live it. But more than that, with it, we chase. We chase the lion, the enemy, the accuser away from us. He flees because we stand on a greater substance the hope of the world, the Savior, Jesus, born in the city of David, the town of Bethlehem, a true and better king that will last forever, that it will sit on his throne forever and ever and ever and ever, and his name is Jesus, and for him we are eternally and gratefully thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.